0: Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. These forums have been broadcast since 1980 to bring to the public voices of conscience addressing key ethical issues. Today's speaker is not only a voice of conscience, but a man of great intellect whose social, economic, and political analysis issue a clarion call that is as hopeful as that call is disturbing. While issuing an urgent call to replace racial reasoning with moral reasoning, Dr. West offers a view of America which is truly kaleidoscopic and interdisciplinary. It is the kaleidoscopic eye which led a Harvard professor of government to say of Cornell West, the Harvard undergraduate, that Cornell West was the most intellectually aggressive and highly intellectual student that he had taught in 30 years at the university. Dr. West has just left Princeton University to return to Harvard as professor of African-American studies and the philosophy of religion at Harvard. Dr. West is a prolific writer. His latest book, Race Matters led the reviewer in the New York Times to describe, to describe the book as a compelling blend of philosophy, sociology, and political commentary, and to applaud his ferocious moral vision and astute intellect. Dr. West's voice is a voice of prophetic courage, a breath of fresh air calling us to move beyond the shouting match between conservative and liberal camps, to a larger vision of the whole that joins together personal freedom with renewed commitment to the, t- to the common good and the public well-being. The voice of Cornell West is a voice America has been waiting to hear. Commenting on race matters, Henry Louis Gates Jr. says, for anyone interested and concerned with the crisis In contemporary America, Cornell West matters. It is my great privilege and pleasure to welcome Dr. Cornell West to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on the topic The Politics of Race in America.
1: Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. I'd like to thank that very, uh, thank Brother Gordon Campbell Stewart for such a kind introduction. Uh, he's the grand leader of this institution. It's awesome responsibility, and he's in the right place at the right time in the right city. I'd like to thank Sister Wendell Moore for being so kind to me, for being so hospitable and warm. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you for coming out today. I always, I always, I always coming to Minneapolis between May and October 15th or so. But it's true, it's true. Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, so host of folk mean a lot to me associated with this particular place brother once named Prince also but we won't go into that at the moment. But in all seriousness I come before you this afternoon as a small part of a great and a grand tradition. This tradition of struggle. a Struggle for decency and dignity, for freedom and democracy. When I think People like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells Barnett and Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin King, and Malcolm X. And those nameless and anonymous foremothers and forefathers who loved enough and cared enough to serve as a springboard for a feeble crack vessel like myself. To have something to say in the latter part of such a ghastly century, I'm deeply humbled. And it's true. But it's a tradition that also includes a white sister like Lydia Maria Child who wrote that famous text, Appeal, in in favor of that class of Americans called Africans who would care for the the family of John Brown after he was executed in December of 1859, who would write about Elijah Lovejoy, a white brother shot, Alton, Illinois in 1837, his press thrown into the Mississippi. River. It's a tradition that includes Brother David Einhorn, Jewish brother, rabbi, dragged out of his synagogue in Baltimore owing oh, to his unequivocal identification with the struggle for freedom and democracy. It's a tradition that includes Miles Horton, who's known for, to many fellow citizens as a cracker, as white trash, but for me in freedom fighters, he's a great prophetic figure. Founder was James Jabronski of Highlander Center that would help train a Rosa Parks and a Stokely Carmichael, and a Diane Nash, and a Robert Moses, and a host of freedom fighters. Cesar Chavez, Brown brother, part of the same tradition. Grace Boggs, Asian sister, part of the same tradition. And you see, I begin by talking about tradition. Why? Because I believe in part that Thomas Stern's Eliot, that grand modernist poet that he was, with reactionary politics, but wisdom at times Root. In his famous essay of 1919, Tradition and Individual Talent, he said, Tradition is not something you inherit. If you want it, you must obtain it with great labor and toil and engagement and sacrifice and service. And I am here to talk about the ways in which we can keep this tradition alive, given the formidable and fundamental impediments and obstacles that now stand before us. Now, granted, I begin by highlighting the vicious legacy of the practice ideology of white supremacy. And white supremacy is not simply an individual bias or a personal prejudice. It is a structural form of idolatry. It has to do with the encounter of Africans with, with the absurd. We didn't have to read Jean Paul Sartre and Albert Camus to know what the absurd was. <laughs> Something as irrational and capricious and arbitrary as measuring one's humanity by one's skin pigmentation is absurd as part of what W. E. Boyce, w. E. Du Bois had in mind when he wrote his first paragraph of his classic of 1903, Souls of Black Folks. How does it feel to be a problem? The query that each and every person of African descent struggles with every minute of their lives. That's why so many fellow Americans couldn't believe what Brother Arthur Ashe when he said the burden of race was more than the burden of AIDS. How could he say it? Because he had to deal with the absurd so much longer than with that deadly disease. Since of being a problem people rather than people with problems. Of having one's humanity problematized rather than having the problems facing one highlighted. Dealing every day with the very subtle and sometimes not too subtle white supremacist assaults on black beauty. Trying to convince black people they have the wrong hips and lips and noses and hair texture and skin pigmentation—that's visceral. Or attacks on black intelligence, guilty before proven innocent. Or if you meet the standards, exceptional Negroes different than the rest of them. Attacks on black moral character. Metaphors like welfare queen symbol of laziness and ripping off the nation state and one looks at the history of black women in this country, 60% in 1900 working in white households raising white children as well as working in their own household and raising their own kids and they become the symbol of laziness and idleness. How absurd! The sense of being cast as part of an undifferentiated blob. A monolithic and homogeneous conglomerate. That's what it is to be cast as a problem people. So why so many people still feel you like to ask one only need to ask one black person to know what the rest of them think. <laughs> because each black person becomes interchangeable and substitutable. They all have the same values, the same sentiments, the same sensibilities. I recall when Brother Jesse was running for president a few years ago, one of the magazines raised the question, what does Jesse want, what does Jesse want? If we could just find out what Jesse wants, we know what they want. No, what Jesse wants is what Jesse wants. We're talking about the condition of invisibility that Ralph Ellison highlighted in his famous novel of 1952. People whose phenotypes Most visible humanity, individuality, diversity, multiplicity, and heterogeneity is rendered invisible. Black folk as abstractions and objects rather than persons and individuals. And when they become visible still as object, it is usually exotic object and transgressive object. Exotic, closer to nature, further removed from intelligence. Spontaneous, vital, vibrant, want to get close when you're feeling down and out to make you feel a little more, less dead. And and transgressive object, source of white fears and anxiety. Criminal. Creating dis-ease and unease by mere presence in certain spaces. This is one of the things that fascinates me about the white media these days. People often look at me and say, oh, Brother Wesley, you are so moderate and Brother Khalid Abdul-Muhammad is so radical. I said, where does that come from? What makes him radical? he's only radical to the degree to which he creates fear in white America. There's nothing radical about that. You can say all kind of nonsense you want and still create fear in white America, but he's cast as radical but if you're radical it has to do what is the substance of what you're talking about what's the content of it to what degree are you radically cutting against the grain there's nothing radical to be xenophobic xenophobic you can mirror so much of American history by being a xenophobe in the same way that you can mirror being an urban cowboy Talking about some of my friends in gangster rap, you know. Feel as if they're so radically cut against the grain, sound like Jesse James. Pull your gun out and protect yourself. It's Dodge City. Nothing radical about that. Radicality has to do with the radical democratic tradition that claims that ordinary people ought to live lives of decency and dignity, and that they're like they're more likely to do that when they have a significant say in the decision-making processes in those institutions that guide and regulate their their lives. That sounds simple, but believe me, that is radical. (laughs)
0: Deeply radical.
1: (laughs) Of course, the assumption is that ordinary people's voices were actually heard. You you assume that they wouldn't choose to be poor and and choose to have inadequate health care and decrepit educational systems. I know there are a few brothers and sisters of all colors who made vows of poverty, but I don't think it's gonna become a mass movement soon. (laughs) But we're talking about something even deeper. We're talking about something even deeper. And it's echoed in many ways in that brother who used to play organ in my church, Alabama Baptist Church in Sacramento, California. We knew him as Sylvester, but he's known to the world for the genius that he is. His name is Sly Stone. He wrote a song called Everyday People. Everybody is a star. What he meant was that the lives of everyday people are shot through with a sense of the majestic and the tragic and the problematic. There's a depth and a complexity in the lives of each and every one of us. Yes, it's true that we are the featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces, that we are. It's true that we're not here that long and we need some meaning and value as we face inevitable and inescapable and unavoidable extinction very soon, someday, very soon. That's true. But that's equalizing, but it also accents our uniqueness and distinctiveness. No one like us. That's a profoundly democratic notion. Why? Because when we look at most of the history of the human adventure, we see what? everyday people force coerced to defer to some set of unaccountable elites be they kings, queens, princes, prelates, magistrates, potentates, earls, lords, squires, suzerain, all viewing everyday people as what? Raw material to exploit and oppress in order to sustain the refined lifestyles of the very few. How rare it is people reach the conclusion that everyday folk have Promethean energies, if unleashed, produce possibilities heretofore downplayed and ignored. You know, Abe Lincoln used to say, God must love common folk. God made so many of them. But he also said, self-government is better than good government. Tremendous expression of democratic faith. Take a chance, make a Pascalian leap of faith. On the mental and moral capacities of everyday people that's what radical democracy is and has been and how rare it is in human history when democratic projects take off how difficult it is to sustain them they usually are short-lived they tend not to last too long and when they unravel it has much to do with increasing poverty that produces escalating levels of despair and increasing paranoia that produces escalating levels of distrust. And to talk about race in America, to talk about the legacy of white supremacy in America is to talk about poverty and paranoia. Yeah. Too many black poor people. Too many poor people in general. they white brothers and sisters in Appalachia or brown brothers and sisters in East Los Angeles. Too much paranoia, distrust, suspicion, given the veil, the thick walls of demarcation between black and white worlds, black and brown, black and yellow. And believe me, you, as John Dewey said with such clarity and perspicacity in his classic of 1927, The Public and Its Problems, that no democracy can survive with well, a body politic shattered, polarized, segmented, fragmented, such that we put low premium, if any, on public life especially public conversation in which people enter public space as citizens not bears of identity solely or representatives of a constituency or a clientele but as citizens looking at public interest and common good and trying to hammer out responses to public problems problems that affect each and every one of us and the assumption here is of course that we are all on the same ship on the same turbulent sea and that ship has a huge leak in it and ultimately we go up together or we go down together. (laughs) Nowhere to hide. This is another way of saying Martin Martin King used to remind us that we are part of one garment of destiny. One inescapable network of mutuality and that's true for vanilla suburbs and it's true for chocolate cities. We go up go down. When I look at America 1994, it strikes me as quite sad, frightening, terrifying, an unprecedented, unprecedented lethal linkage, relative economic decline, undeniable cultural decay, and political lethargy all conspiring together to make it difficult for the tradition that I'm talking about. The democratic tradition, the best of the democratic tradition, to stay alive. The relative economic decline, the slow motion, the silent depression in urban centers. The levels of unemployment and underemployment. The part-time job with hardly any benefits and no pension is more and more paradigmatic as a permanent job with decent living wages become more and more difficult to procure. The redistribution of wealth upward and the redistribution of tax burden downward. The vast gap and disparity between the well-to-do and the vast majority of Americans. The top 20% doing fairly well, professional managers. The top 1% doing very, very, very well. 42% experiencing wage deflation. Of course, the working poor, and never forget, 20% of all Americans in the labor force work more than 40 hours a week, do not receive one penny from the federal government, but still live in poverty. The working poor, if they do not embody the Protestant ethic, who does? Defer gratification, thrifty, frugal, work hard, still living in poverty. Of course, 20% of all of our children live in poverty across the race, and 42% of our young brown brothers and sisters under 10 live in poverty and 51% of young black brothers and sisters under 10 live in poverty. What sense of the future can they have? Relative economic decline generates fears of downward mobility or experiences of downward mobility that always brings out the worst in each and every one of us, leads us to scapegoating, leads us to look for conspiratorial theories to account for why things are out of control, and we see it proliferating around the country. I'm not talking solely about Brother Rush. (laughs) Brother Rush Limbo speaks to something very real the pain and the grief and the fear of so many white working-class and lower middle-class brothers. And it's real. As they feel as if they are becoming invisible with the women and the browns and blacks and yellows and reds taking over. You remind them, look at corporate elite and see the degree to which they're taking over. Look at your bank elites and see the degree to which they're taking over. But their pain is real one needs to speak to it but it ought not to take the form of scapegoating. Oh, if all the women had stayed in the kitchen, the culture would be intact. If we can control the black folk, we'd actually have jobs. Do you think so? How many black folk own production units in your part of the country? Oh, if the gay brothers and the lesbian sisters just stayed in the closet the morality would be intact. Oh, really? They're that powerful. When they stepped out, things collapsed. Really? (laughs) Let's be real. Let's be real. But it's not simply the relative economic decline that people have in mind. It is the undeniable cultural decay, and that decay is inseparable, but not identical with the economic decline. Has to do with the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age in this country of cold heartedness and mean spirit, and as a result of oh, the distinctive feature of decline of every civilization we know, going back to the Sumerians of Mesopotamia and the Egyptians of northern Africa, and that is this. The relative erosion of the systems for nurturing and caring, especially for children. And it is systemic, it's not just a family affair. Brother Dan Quayle has his views about this. He's got an insight, but the ideology is wrong. His insight is the family's in trouble. He's right. But even when the family was stronger and a nuclear family was in place, it always took more than two to raise children. You needed aunts and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers and rabbis and ministers and deacons and little lead teachers and steal a little luck and grace. You needed a thick web of social relationships for the nurturing and the caring. And what we are seeing is a systemic erosion in the families, but one site, one institution within that network. And it is being emptied out and hollowed out by what? A market culture, buying and selling, promoting and advertising, which tries to convince us that to be alive is to be addicted to stimulation and titillation. You know, down and out, go to the mall. Consume and feel better about yourself with money you don't have. Or engage in that dominant activity of fellow citizens which is watching television. Engaging that spectatorial passivity with those moving images and sound. Most of those images degraded images of women's bodies trying to convince us to consume as the commercials become more frequent. The concept of the good life, market morality. Hedonistic, narcissistic, hook up to a pleasure machine forever and be parentally titillated and stimulated. How spiritually impoverished. And let's just be real about it. So much of market culture these days evolves around sexual foreplay and orgiastic intensity. Which means the ultimate logic is simply hook up to an orgasm machine forever and be parentally titillated and stimulated. No reflection about the diminishing returns. No need for conversation. Just be still learning. How spiritually impoverishing. But a market culture and market morality boosts market mentality. I'm going to gain access to power and pleasure and property now by any means. And in a gun culture, that's dangerous. People living in despair, that's dangerous. I want it now. Give it to me, your property, your body. Frightening. Makes it difficult for non market values to gain a foothold. There is no radical democratic tradition. There's no struggle against white supremacy, against male supremacy, against vast economic inequality, against homophobia, against structures of domination as it affects disabled without non market values love, care, concern, service to others, community, justice. Fidelity, trust, commitment, even the dominant metaphor of capitalist society itself, contract, means nothing without truth-telling and promise-keeping. Without those values being in place, contract is just another way of manipulating people, another way of subordinating people. Even in our intimate lives, non-market values like gentleness, kindness, Sweetness. When I was coming along, we used to slow dance to Otis Redding's song called Try a Little Tenderness. I like the song. Otis is on to an important point in terms of what it is to be human. Qualitative relations that are more than just bodies bumping up against one another and asking what the performance level is from zero to ten after. It's about reliability and dependability. How do we talk about race in such a market culture linked to the relative economic decline and the political lethargy, the escalating fatalism, pessimism, and cynicism? What a moment to be alive in the last empire in the 20th century, 218 years after the embarking on the precious yet precarious democratic experiment. What do we do? No overnight solutions, no push-button panacea. First, we need something profoundly un-American. A sense of history. (laughs) A deep sense of history. Why? Because there can be no high-quality public conversation without a sense of history that recognizes the ambiguous legacies of the past, that precludes any mannequin views of the world that put all the good on one side and all the bad on the other. That acknowledges that no one group, one race, one sexual orientation, one class, one nation has a monopoly on truth, or virtue, or wisdom. That opens us up. Gives us a sense of the tragic dimension of human history. And don't, I'm not confusing the tragic with the pathetic. Pathetic has to do with viewing yourself as a victim and an object. The tragic has to do with exploring all possibilities for human freedom, human action and human agency, but knowing that there are limits, the limits you know not of, you simply fight and fight. And fight in light abroad, more vision, sophisticated analysis, and based on courage. You see. But a sense of history, not only that, but also allows us, for, allows us to acknowledge the, the hybrid character of our culture. And this is so very important in a moment in which multiculturalism is being hotly debated and contested these days. That we all are part of a hybrid culture. I am a New World African who dreams in English. John Coltrane played a European instrument in the way that no European ever played it before. That's cultural hybridity, cross-cultural fertilization, the ways in which the European, the African, and the Mero-Indian are deeply tied and that makes it difficult to polarize become polarized based on reified identities and by reified identities I mean identities that float in the sky but have little to do with the variety of different contexts that each and every one of us live in in our everyday lives no one of us have one identity but there's one thing we do share in common and that is that we're part of this democratic project being able to conceive of what it's like to get inside of the skin of someone else. That takes imagination. And in the moment in which imagination is flattened in polarized spaces, we lose the will to even want to imagine what it's like to be someone else. You know, Simone Weil, the great Jewish Christophile. She loved Christ, but was not a Christian. She said, you know, love of thy neighbor and all of its fullness means being able to say to him or her, what are you going through? Can I be of help? You can't raise that question without a knowledge of what their circumstances are and the conditions against which they struggle. That sense of history, expansion of scope, of is so very important. And last but not least is, of course, courage. But not simply the courage of one's conviction, but also the courage to attack one's convictions. Sly Stone says, I could be right, I could be wrong. My own beliefs are in my soul. He's echoing Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. But also Malcolm X, the examined life is painful. It hurts. It's the only way you grow, mature, and develop self-criticism, self-correction sits at the very center of public life in a democracy, public conversation in a democracy. The sense of history, the empathy, and the courage in the form of self-criticism becomes so very important. And then maybe then we can muster and garner that sense of audacious hope that we so desperately need. And this is not the same as optimism. I am not optimistic about America. The evidence is too overwhelming that it looks as if we're sliding down a slippery slope to chaos and anarchy and disorder. But I am a prisoner of hope. And in that regard, I echo my black foremothers and forefathers who always hoped against hope in the form of a combative spirituality, never to allowing misery to have the last word. Never, never. The kind of hope that looks the evidence in the face and makes a leap of faith beyond the evidence to create new evidence to energize and galvanize fellow citizens to appeal to the angels of their nature, the best of who and what they are, convincing them that the world is incomplete and that history is unfinished and the future is open-ended and what we do together makes a difference. This is what I bring to Minneapolis today, this sense that even in these difficult times, even in these difficult times, We should keep our heads to the sky as earth, wind, and fire used to sing. We should keep our hands on the plow the way Mahalia Jackson sang with such power, even when it takes the form of unadvertised service. We ought to keep our eyes not so much on each other's inadequacies, but on the prize. Something bigger, grander, and better than us. This is what it means to talk about Vision its not a vision thing, that's a commodification of vision. Vision such that less perish. A vision where people feel as if the world is closing upon them. And here's a sense of possibility giving new meaning to the claim that yes it is always dawn the day breaks forever and above the eastern horizon at this very moment somewhere the sun is about to peak. And that's all we need. And those who are willing to meet this challenge I can simply say I'll be there with you because I'm going down fighting. Thank you all so much.
0: ...matters, you you talk about the threat to the African-American community being nihilism or nihilism. Uh, And you spoke just a moment ago about market forces and uh, the, uh, everything in the market, everything in advertising, urging us to seek comfort or instant stimulation. Can you, can you say a bit more about this, to elaborate on, on those market forces and on what you describe in the book as nihilism mm-hmm. and its mm-hmm. threat? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, thank you so very much. Uh, one, on the economic level, of course, a major market force has qualitatively transformed large numbers of black communities in this country is the drug industry. Uh, the buying selling of that particular commodity that has had such a devastating impact uh, on both drug users as well as uh, dwellers within uh, black communities, especially even though it spills over outside the black community. And that has gone hand in hand with the disinvestment in black communities. Resources, be it educational systems, be it service systems, hospitals, right across the board in addition to the levels of unemployment and underemployment I talked about before. Now culturally, this also takes the form of the difficulty of sustaining those institutions that transmitted non-market values like families, neighborhood. I mean, it's no accident that young folk don't call it a neighborhood anymore. They call it the hood, hood, where are the neighbors, any neighbors left? Interesting notion, because the hood is where you have to fight to survive. I grew up in a neighborhood. I knew Miss Johnson down the street, loved me enough to keep track of me, you see. Sometimes too much, we won't go into that at the moment. But but the point is is that the the, the nihilism that we're talking about, which is in no way dominant, but it is a tendency in the black community, is a result of what goes on at the economic level, at the cultural level, now at the political level is a question of the relative failure of black leadership which is not to say there are not a significant number of black folk out there as leaders, as spokespersons who are trying to do the best that they can. But it's the inability to project visions that provide hope for those who are undergoing these processes at the economic and cultural level. And that has much to do, of course, with the political class. It's very difficult to speak to the deep needs of a despised and downtrodden yet dignified people when you're locked within the constraints of the political system, and so much of the talent in the black community has gone into the political system. And we need a division of labor, no doubt. But what happens is you leave huge vacuums in black leadership. See Much of the debate these days about Minister Lewis Farrakhan is the degree to which he tries to feel that vacuum and speak boldly and defiantly about black suffering, black misery so forth. Simply becomes incumbent upon those who are going to keep Fannie Lou Hamer's tradition alive to ensure that there's no put down of others as the basis of the uplifting of black folk. Based on moral grounds. Simply immoral is wrong. But to feel that vacuum. And so we need, especially uh, young people, more bold, outspoken leaders who will speak, to these issues in such a way that they keep alive the best of the black freedom struggle, the best of what Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Keene and Ella Baker were all about. I know that's a long answer. I'm gonna be very brief the next time, no
0: One uh, member of the audience asks your opinion uh, on reorganizing voter zones to enhance the chance of minorities getting elected.
1: Yeah, right now there's quite, quite a controversy going on. Line Guineer has some fascinating, fascinating things to say uh, about that. You see, one, I uh, I do believe that on the one hand, we are reaching the point where large numbers of fellow citizens of all colors are willing to make judgments based on character, based on integrity and vision. And so you get a number of black politicians who are actually elected in districts where, in fact, black people are the minority. That is a very positive move. In the same way, it's always better to elect a white progressive than a black reactionary, no matter where one is voting. It's a matter of principle. It's a matter of what, 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 what criteria one uses. At the same time, we also know there's a whole host of forces at work that are still trying to ensure that business as usual in American politics and historically business as usual in American politics has meant not only discrimination against black people, but deflating any emerging forms of black political power, we must keep track, very much. And so the question becomes, how then do we hold on to both? The commitment to moral principles, broader political vision, and at the same time ensure that business as usual does not
0: occur would you briefly comment on the assassination of the black male image?
1: My image is intact. (laughs) But the history of the degradation of black people and black males, integral to American history, is still at work. There's no doubt about that. And therefore, uh, when we talk about the male image, it is the male image constructed by white supremacist powers and sensibilities. It's not my black male image, you see. But the problem becomes how then does the richer, deeper, more nuanced black male image become more visible, rather than the construct created by those powers that make more available such an image than what one sees, in a John Coltrane or a James Baldwin. What black male image so rich? So it's a continuous struggle in that regard. So I don't want to make fun of the question, it's just that it affects me personally in terms of the ways in which myself, my son, my late father invested so much time and energy in preserving a rich black male identity that's that continues with the human identity, but distinctive in terms of the specific circumstance of being black male, and that has not been assassinated. I'm here to inform you that it's alive and well, and it's just not as strong as some of us would like it to be in the larger images in American society.
0: Thank you. One person asks, who are, who are some important black leaders now in America? Why do there seem to be no Dr. King's or Malcolm's? And what hope is there? Where is the hope? Where do you see the hope for future leaders being nurtured in America at this time? Mm.
1: Appreciate the question. Most of the important black leaders at this very moment are invisible, working on grassroots levels, engaging every day in trying to sustain and expand their own network or organizations. And there are thousands across this nation. Some are in prophetic churches. Some are in community groups. Some have their own organization. Some work eight hours and remain engaged after and so forth. Part of the problem is, is that precisely because black folk are usually viewed as just problem people, the dominant society is always looking for the one or two who will feel that H and I C slot. You know, the head negro in charge slot, you see. And we're reaching the point now where we're more mature than that. And not only that, but we want democratic accountability of spokespersons and leaders. You don't simply want the phallic figure up front who somehow reflects all of the complex needs and demands and desires and hopes of black folk. There are a variety of different spokespersons. The important thing is to constitute public forum. This is one of the reasons why. I was so supportive of the summit process that Brother Ben Chavis was trying to do and I know it was quite controversial around the country, but it's an attempt to create public space. And you do that within one's own community and across. There's are gonna have to be black white and black Jewish and black red and black yellow, public forms too. And then ultimately as a nation, we'll be able to engage in conversation, but it's not gonna be one leader, one talking head that somehow represents all who will more than likely get shot and therefore will go into traumatic shock the way we did after April 4th, 1968. That's not gonna happen.
0: Question about the the rise of black anti Semitism. The question is why here? Why now?
1: Just well one, I mean anti-Semitism is as American as cherry pie. No group in America is free of spot or wrinkle. I don't know of a Christian civilization or a civilization shaped by Christianity that has not in some way fulfilled the ugly potential of anti-Semitism. The question then becomes, how does it then relate among a particular people who themselves are underdogs, deeply shaped by Christianity, and also early on, especially in cities in the 1920s and 30s, see Jews as the public face of the larger system, given their filling of various slots as landlord and shopkeeper and small business person, you see, and re- putting and expressing that resentment, the system as a whole, on these mediating figures. You see. Uh, uh, and I think what we're what we're witnessing now, and I mentioned it briefly in my presentation, where so many of us of all colors and all classes and regions. Are tilting toward scapegoating and tilting toward conspiratorial theories, that we're seeing something, unfortunately, profoundly American, more and more manifest, not only across the board, but affecting black communities in ways that it had not affected it before. Because you see, historically, black Christians, though always having anti Semitic elements within the larger community, have been much less anti Semitic than other. Christians, white Christians, white Catholics, white Lutherans. I know I'm in Catholic Lutheran countries, so I might as well just tell the truth. <laughs> you see, deeply so. But there, there, there are relative increases, and it has much to do with the linking of, uh, uh, of black suffering to uh, certain conceptions of Jewish power. I mean, this is one of my uh, major contentions with uh, Minister Lewis Farrakhan. There's nothing wrong with focusing on black suffering and ensuring that all of those who are in some way contributing are held responsible. So that if conservative elites promote programs that in some significant ways impede black progress, critique must be brought to bear. They can be white, black, Jewish, Italian, Polish, they're making choices moral choices. And if you can make the argument that those choices are contributing to the impeding of black progress, that argument would put forward and you make your moral critique. But we have to indeed keep track of all forms of xenophobia, but at the same time, we must not engage in deferential treatment. When you talk about General Brown, the head of the chief of, chief of staff, talking about all Jews all the banks and all the newspapers, and this is a powerful man making this statement. You don't see his picture laid up on the front of every newspaper and on the front of Newsweek and so forth and so on. Which means when you talk about those folks who are engaged in forms of xenophobia, you've got to play the game by one set of rules. They're not cast. The black xenophobes is having a monopoly on a form of evil in the country. Because black folk will then respond to the differential treatment rather than to the content of what is being said by us. And so it's a very delicate issue, and and it behooves the uh, media, electronic and and printed, uh, uh, to attempt to both be morally critical but also be fair in terms of the ways in which uh, the various forms of racism against different peoples uh, is manifest in our different communities.
0: We have time for one last question. I'd like to ask from one of the audience how do you think that the black community can become more of a family, less enemies? And there's a footnote here about uh, because of crime, and I think what the person is saying, because of of the crime rate related to poverty in the black community and the statistics that you were citing earlier. And I'd like to ask, in addition to that, if you could speak to what what drives you to do what you do and to, to speak with the passion and the clarity with which you speak.
1: Hmm. Okay, thank you very much. That's a tough question at the end, but the, the, I mean, one, is that for me, you see, uh, when I I look at black America, I see too much poverty and not enough self-love. The poverty generates despair, but the difficulty of self-love and self-respect and self-affirmation has to do with the white supremacist bombardment that I talked about before. And if there's not buffers there so that the internalizing of the way in which the larger society tends to look at you, if that's not combated and held at arm's length, then you begin to reach the conclusion that maybe you are not worth that much and maybe people who look like you are not worth that much and therefore you can take your life with their life and not feel as if it's a big deal. Now of course in one sense that echoes the priorities of the nation. Right? Black kids couldn't be worth that much given what they are up against. If one out of two live in poverty, right? if they have decrepit educational systems, we bombard them with alien ideals of beauty and so forth, what kind of priorities do we have as a nation vis-a-vis them? They get the message. And historically, it's been black institutions that have served as a counter to such message. Family, church, mosque, synagogue, for the black Jewish brothers and sisters and so forth, you see. And it's precisely that struggle to sustain self-love, which itself is an act of love, that sustains me. And all I do is simply mirror the love of mom and dad and granddad and grandmother and grandfather, though it's mediated through Harvard and Princeton, but it's basically the same. It's basically the same. That's what kept me going.
0: Dr. West, thank you for being with us.